you have a copy of the scriptures, and I hope you do, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to continue on in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll share with you that I guess it was probably a couple of weeks ago that I was watching an episode of The Price is Right. And I don't know, never really envisioned myself starting uh, with that. <laughs> so apparently, I don't, maybe I've crossed an age threshold where The Price is Right is cool to me now. I'm not sure. But uh, got, my boys recently have gotten into watching The Price is Right, and not because they think the games are cool or the price bidding is interesting, but mostly just because they think it's hilarious to watch the people when they call their name and they run down and they're, ah! And then most of them end up losing, and they were just excited about nothing. But anyway, so we were watching The Price is Right. A uh, long way to get to the point here, but they were doing a Christmas in July episode of The Price is Right. My boys were asking about what is Christmas in July. And I guess that got me in a Christmas mindset. Started thinking about Christmas stuff and landed on one of my favorite all-time Christmas movies. Um, it's, and it's a really short list, so it wasn't hard competition, but... Um, a Christmas Carol, okay? And I don't know if you've seen A Christmas Carol, but not just any A Christmas Carol. Um, Mickey Mouse, A Christmas Carol, right? I don't know. Anybody seen Mickey Mouse, A Christmas Carol in the house where Mickey is the guy that works for Ebenezer? Okay, good. Just making sure that all of you are okay. We don't have as much need. I, if there were no hands, we might have just had everybody come down for prayer right here to get us started, okay? But, but I remember watching A Christmas Carol as a kid, and I loved it. Mickey Mouse has said he's the employee who's treated poorly by... Ebenezer Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, the stingy one, the big boss who's rich is played by Donald Duck. Never understood Donald Duck. He wears a jacket, some kind of diaper contraption that looks a little bit elegant, and then some kind of thing that wraps his feet. They're shoes-ish. They're not actual shoes. They kind of look like shoes. They may have been the precursor to Crocs. I'm not sure what's going on, all right? But, but there's Donald Duck, and if you remember, he's super stingy at the beginning of the story. He doesn't want to give even a second of an extra moment off for Christmas. He's not into giving a bonus for Christmas to help buy gifts or provide a meal. He's just rude to everybody. Everybody wishes him Merry Christmas. And what does he say in response? Bah humbug. Man, y'all got excited about that. That's concerning, right? But he, everybody's joyous and happy because it's time to celebrate Christmas. And they say, Merry Christmas. Bah humbug, right? And he just turns and goes his own way. And then you remember, right? He has that experience that night. Where he's visited by the ghost of, of spirits past, present, and future. And it just absolutely shakes him down to the pit of who he is. He, he sees how things could be different in his life. He sees how the way that he's living has, has shaped a lot of different people in a lot of different circumstances. And it's appalling to him. And it's sad to him. And it grips him. And if you'll remember, he wakes up so glad to be alive. Right? Which in Donald Duck is just, he's just happy, right? He's just excited to be there. And he makes his way out the door. And, and as he encounters people in the town around him, if you'll remember, they're just absolutely startled by this guy. <laughs> they're bumping into Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's doing stuff like telling the guy at the market to cover more food for them, give them everything that they want. And he's throwing money at people when used to. He would even take just the last penny from them. He would make sure he got it all. He's, he's throwing money at them. He's providing for them. He's showing up at Mickey Mouse's house, and he's making the meal go well. And everybody, when they meet him and see him, you remember their response. They're looking at him with kind of wide eyes and like, what has happened to this guy? See, he had been shaken down to his core, and that shaped his behavior. We know it's true on the converse side of the coin as well. When someone says that, hey, I've, I've changed, my character is now different, but we continue to see their interactions with us look exactly the same, we start to doubt. 
don't we? You ever had somebody come to you and tell you they're sorry for the same thing over and over and over again? And in some extent, that's an area where we need to offer grace because we're all human and we all stumble multiple times. But in another extent, don't you just want to go, hey, if you're really sorry, then let's change. If you're really sorry, we, we teach at our house, part of sorry is I want to not do this again. Part of sorry is I'm asking God to help me stop because I realized that it was hurtful. Right? When we see unchanged character right, or unchanged behavior, we realize that, that there's been unchanged character. When we see somebody whose actions look the same, it doesn't matter what platform they stand on and how they say they've been impacted and what moment they had. If their relationships with us don't look any different, we have a hard time grasping that they've actually been changed. Right? That's why I believe the Apostle Paul, as we jump back into Ephesians, is going to take this remade identity that he's given us in Jesus. He's told us and told us about how Jesus has worked to reshape us and rewire us and make us different, that that was God's plan all along. He said he's done this in you, and now he's telling us how to live this out and how to go be the person that we now are. And he's going to turn now and look at several different relationships that are common to our lives. He's going to look not just to our morality and the decisions that we make and being wise or unwise, as we saw last week, which was important. But, but he's going to go, it's not just about wise and unwise and moral decisions and things that you do and decisions you make. But I want to point directly into your relationships because we're relationships remain unchanged, we assume that character remains unchanged, right? And so he wants to say, this is how being changed by Jesus, being rewired by him should shape and influence and color the relationships that you have. He's going to start in Ephesians 5, verse 22, with wives. Heavy passage, one that if you've grown up in church, you may know and you may even kind of dread, (laughs) We'll try to talk through it a little bit, okay? And maybe we can try to understand. I've noticed that when we understand rightly what God is saying, we tend to appreciate it, right? And so hopefully we can see it rightly and appreciate it more. He says this in Ephesians 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just wonder, wives, you can say it vocally, you can not if you're not comfortable, but I wonder what is the focal word you heard in that passage? Submit. Nobody said Christ, right? I don't know what's up with that, right? We read that and it sounds so oppressive, doesn't it? It sounds such a heavy blanket, such a heavy weight. We're geared to think that way. And maybe even our culture and our society trains us to think that way. When we hear that word submit, we kind of go, ugh. It doesn't matter if it's about wives and husbands. It doesn't matter what it's about, employees and bosses, right? Player and coach. When somebody says, you need to submit, nobody's ever been like, yes, right? Nobody's ever thrown a victory party because they found out they get to submit, right? When you hear the word submit, you kind of groan. What's interesting is that that word when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he said the same exact word, and we looked at it last week, and none of us felt the same weight. Did you see it in verse 21 that we'll come back to in just a few minutes? He says, submit to one another in the Lord. So so he's already said, 
right? Whatever it means to submit, we're supposed to be doing that to each other regularly. That's supposed to be a present, ongoing part of our lives is that we submit to one another. And now he's just applying more specifically, more particularly, this submission in the relationship of the wife to the husband, right? He says, listen, wives, submit not to every person, not to every man, but wives, submit to your own husbands. This word, submit, as best I can understand it as I've studied, means to surrender your insistence on your will. Surrendering my insistence upon my will being done and things going my way, if I had to parse it down to easy, Jason, 2023, I would just say it's giving up on going my own way. Doesn't mean that we might not still go a way that I desire to go, but it means that I give up on insisting that we're going to do it my way, that we're going my way. And instead of that, I'm now looking for the input of others, and I'm looking for more than input, even leadership from others. Again, there's a sense in which we do this with each other holistically as a collective, but he's saying, wives, do this with your husbands. Look to them for guidance, for leadership. Now I want to make sure we hear what submission is not. Okay, submission as a wife is not that, that we give in to some militant, overbearing guy who, who seems to, to want to say that he's noble and he's our husband and so he just whatever he says we absolutely do it and we say yes sir and we never have a thought we never have an opinion we just say yes every time you see here's the thing that we're going to see in just a minute is that if if that is your husband he's not the the christ-like character that he's supposed to be leading you with to begin with right wives are called to submit to husbands though but but i want to make sure you heard that it doesn't mean you don't have individual thought it doesn't mean that you don't have opinion perspective input right you can go to first samuel chapter one the story that many of us maybe grew up being familiar with the story of samuel's birth samuel's dad's name is elkanah and it says in chapter one of first samuel that it came the time of year for them to go and make the the yearly offering uh, at the temple and so it says that he kind of rounds up his family and he's getting everybody ready to go and worship and he goes to his wife and he says hey it's time for us to go and she with this new babe says no I, i think i need to wean him and then i will bring him later and we'll leave him there for the lord and it's interesting what he says is he's rounded the family up he's got the car ready men you've been there everything's packed perfectly such that when you raise the hatch everything falls out so you can't unpack you can't move you can't change anything he's sitting on go and then she says no I don't think that I'm going and I don't think we're taking him right now and it's amazing what he does he doesn't slam his foot down and go get in the car (laughs) what he does instead is say if that seems right to you I think you should do that Right? You see, wise leadership oftentimes is knowing that you look to others and their opinions in direction. <laughs> it's kind of like this. My wife is a teacher by trade. She's been educated in it. She's, she's, she has more college little IDs than, than we even want to talk about. She moved a few times, changed her mind about what she's going to do. She is an educated lady, all right? She's smarter than me by far. We knew that when we met. I mean, she just is, right? She's into it. She's taught school for years and years. Here's the deal. At our house, I help out with homework and school decisions as much as I'm needed to. I try to do that. But however, most often when the decision comes up about school and they come to dad, I go, I don't know. What does mom think? Not because I don't want to help, not because I'm not invested, but because I know that my perspective is uninformed and probably not the wisest. If we've got her over there with all this wisdom and knowledge, why would we not look to her and trust her? They come to me for leadership, and I lead them to go and look to their mom to lead. 
It's not me saying do this because if it was, my kids would be in trouble at school. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to get in trouble for it. If you do not like this, understand we love each other across differences, and you can email nick at dublinbiblechurch.com, okay? <laughs> but, but I'm just going to say this. I'm a fan of education. Love it. My kids get a great education. Can I just say this? It's going to be uncomfortable. I'm not usually a fan of homework. Okay, I just don't, I just, I didn't like it when it was mine. I don't love it when it's theirs. Okay, I understand that every once in a while, Karen Powell, I don't know if you do homework, but I feel like you're mad at me right now, girl. Just stick with me, okay? But like, but like when it's, when it's their home, I, I just don't, I'm like every once in a while, bring a little something home, that's fine. But when they're coming home with programmed homework that we're going to do after we've already done the school sports and the showers and the dinner and it's midnight and we're going, let's start homework. It's miserable. <laughs> Right? I just don't get it. Like, I, I didn't like it was theirs. Don't like it was mine. If my kids were to come to me, right, and we were leaving mom out of the loop, and it was, Dad, what should we do? We got this homework, but I don't want to do it. I'm tired. I would say, I don't want to do it either. Let's go to bed. Right? That would be my leadership. But I think it's good leadership for my kids for me to realize that there's somebody here who has a wisdom I don't have. There's somebody here who has a passion I don't have. There's somebody who has an understanding from being in the context that I don't have. So let's see what mom has to say. And that's just one example of a million. Where, yes, I'm the God-given head of my household, but that doesn't mean that I reign over my house with some kind of dictatorial closed fist pounding on the table. It means that I take responsibility for all of our decisions and taking them to the Lord. And I want to carry the weight of those first and foremost before that weight affects anybody else first. Right? And then if you have... That leadership wives, what you're called to is to submit, is to look at that and go, I'm looking for leadership. I'm looking for input. I'm looking for direction. I may have input, but I also want to be led. Those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I may have ideas, and my ideas may be the best, but still, let's do this together. Right? I'm looking for that. It's interesting that there's no qualification on which wives Paul is talking to. He doesn't only mention this to the wives who have great godly husbands who are leading in the church or who are the the most humble that you've ever met. He says, listen, submit to your own husband without qualification. The qualification here, I believe, is this, as he says, submit as unto the Lord. The qualification is follow your husband as far as you can follow them without sinning. When he says, as unto the Lord, he's not saying as if your husband is authoritatively the same as the Lord. I believe what he's saying is this, is that there are people in our lives that will be hard to follow. Don't say any names, but I bet you've had that experience. (laughs) Somebody's chuckling. They're like, yeah. (laughs) There are people that are hard to follow. That's not a happy reality. We're not here to bash those folks. But the reality is you've probably had a boss. You've probably had a coach. You've had a fill in the blank that you knew that it was God honoring for you to follow. And yet your following of them was not necessarily happy. It was, I kind of have to push through. It's really hard, but I'm, I'm going to do this. And I believe what he's saying is, is when you follow others, even if there are those who don't have your same mindset, even if there are those that are difficult to follow, follow them with the same attitude that you would bring into following the Lord. Do your best to follow humbly and follow as far as you can. But stop short of diverting from the path that the Lord has for you because any person has a different path. Don't go there. So wives, he says, listen, submit to your husbands. Why in the world would he tell you to do that? He told us in these verses, he says, here's the picture, here's the illustration that he wants you to have because the husband is the head of the wife, of the family, just as Christ is the head of the church. 
I don't know if you've ever seen a body acting independently of the brain's input. <laughs> right? Maybe if you've ever had to slaughter a chicken before. You didn't know we were going to talk about that today, did you? Right? You ever seen a chicken with no head or a snake with its head cut off and it's alpha? The snake's over here doing its deal and the head's sitting there looking at you. Right? That guy's running trying to get away or going to find some water. You don't know what he's doing, but you're like, dude, it's pointless. It's done. Right? Like, it's not going to work for you. Right? The head is meant to work in conjunction with the body. Right? It's meant to be this beautiful relationship. He says, listen, God has gifted husbands and called husbands and laid on them a wonderful opportunity and yet still obligation to be the head. To take on the responsibility, to take on the weight. Step into that. We're going to see more about that in just a minute. But wives, he says, listen, live as if you have a head. Don't live as if you're disconnected. Submit to them. Right? Give up on going your own way. Not that you might not get to decide the way, but you just aren't insistent upon that. Right? You're more concerned about we than you are about me. How do we get there? Not my plan, my path. I'm so blessed to have a wife like that in my life. Now, why in the world, wives, would you submit to some guy? The truth is, nobody else wants to say it. I'll say it. We're oftentimes smelly. We sweat a lot. We leave socks laying places that socks shouldn't be. Right? We, we don't make the best of decisions. Sometimes we get our emotions in an uproar and we break things, and that was just over a football game. Okay? It didn't even have anything to do with anything that really mattered. Right? Why would you follow some guy? Why would you follow a husband? I believe that Paul is going to show us that. Notice that wives, you got just three or four verses there. He's about to just really unload some content for the husbands, right? Which ought to be really informative for wives and prospective wives for one day. He says this to the husbands, verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Never had this thought before, but just reading that out loud, I just want to point out verse 27. Husbands, he's not telling you to point out your wife's wrinkles, okay? That will get you in trouble. That's not the point, okay? What he says here is, love your wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. So if you find yourself as a husband, you're going, I want to love my wife in a God-honoring way. I want to get that right. Many of us might say, hey, I want to get that right. And in some ways, I had a great example of that. And in other ways, I don't really know exactly what to do. Probably most of us would say that in one measure or another. He says, if you want to love your wife, if you want to honor God, love your wife. And love her as Christ loved the church. We've been talking around here for about a year. It comes up regularly. What is love? Love, as I best can understand the picture from Scripture, is not an emotion or a butterfly or a good feeling. Right? Love is a radical commitment to the advancement and well-being of another. It is I'm in and I'm radically committed when it's easy and when it's hard, when it's joyous and when it's a labor. I am in to helping you advance, to doing whatever it is that leads to your well-being. I don't take my pleasure and my comfort and my sleep schedule and my, my, my into account before I first stop and say, no, 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 what is it that I can do to help you advance, right? This is what love is if it's meant for us to understand love from the person of Jesus. This is love, 
Radical commitment to the advancement and well-being of another. And he says, husbands, do that. Be radically committed to your wife's advancement and well-being. And do that how? Do it as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's a couple things I want us to hear, husbands. One is more implicit and the other one is directly stated. The implicit one is this, is that we should initiate in our love for our wives. That we should be proactive. Jesus, when he came to rescue us, it says that he did that at a time when we were rebellious against him. None of us were crying out to him, God, please send a savior because I'm so sinful before your holiness. That wasn't happening. We didn't have that desire. Many of us didn't exist. Actually, let me back check that. None of us existed when Jesus came. All right, let's get that right. Timeline. There you go. Right. But humanity as a whole, nobody's begging Jesus to come. Nobody's even wanting him to come. The Bible tells us that even if we had any inkling of what God was up to in the earth, that our hearts are so rebellious, we probably would never have the humility to cry out for a Savior. Jesus doesn't wait for things to go so poorly that he has to step in. Jesus doesn't wait for an overwhelmed bride called the church to say, I don't know what else to do. Will you please help? He doesn't wait. He steps in in the moment when we're spiritually dead. He steps in in the moment when we're doomed and hopeless in and of ourselves and said, I am going to lift you up out of this. He initiates. It's a proactive sacrificialness. It is, I give myself up for you. I give up my desires. I give up my time. I give up my effort. I give up my energy. I give up my sleep. I give up my whatever. Proactively, I'm looking for where can I do that to be radically committed to your advancement and your well-being. It says love is Christ. Love the church. You want an idea of what that looks like. One thing is this is just to be proactively sacrificial. You'll you'll be going a long way towards mirroring the love of Jesus to your wife if you do that. But that's not it. It's not just that you sacrifice hard. It's not just that you love a lot and give up a lot. There's an aim to it. I hope that you heard it. He said, listen, husbands, love your wives, but, but do it in verse 26. That, so that, you might say, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. You see, the husband is not to be just struggling and straining to sacrifice just so he can then say, look how much I've sacrificed. He's not struggling and straining and sacrificing just for the name of sacrifice. He's sacrificing in order that he might be able to point his wife to purity. That he might be able to be a a figurehead, a beachhead in the battle against good and evil in our hearts and lives and souls, against temptation, against all that would come against us and cause our faith to wander. That he might be a, a pointed place that would be the first place that would say, no, 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 look at Jesus and see how much he loves you. Help your wives grow in purity. Right? There's a two way tension for us as husbands if we're going to love our wives this way. Right? On one hand, we got to hear this, that Jesus never fails to sanctify his bride, the church. Jesus is committed to us not just coming to know him, but to us growing up to be mature in him. Jesus is loving us just as we are, but loving us way too much to leave us that way. Right? I, I, I love my six-year-old. I, I love that he just wears his Mario underwear around the house. If he's, you're coming over to my house one day 20 years from now and, I, and I've got a 26-year-old and he's sitting in my house in Mario underwear eating popcorn, we got a problem, right? I absolutely adore that kid and love who he is, but I love him too much to let him stay that way forever, right? Christ is committed to us growing and maturing in our faith. 
So if we're going to be husbands that are committed to pointing our wives to purity, then we're going to have to be committed. We can't slack off. We can't run away. But also see and understand this. It says in one of Paul's other letters, he says that it's the kindness of the Lord that's meant to lead us to repentance. It's not the loudness of the Lord shout at us. It's not how hard Jesus cracks the belt together as my mom used to when I was going to get a whipping and I ran off shrieking. That's supposed to lead me to do differently. Ultimately, primarily, first, it's supposed to be a clear picture of God's grace in my life. The fact that God is perfectly holy and that I am sinfully marred in every part of my being. I'm affected by my sinfulness and I would never meet the standard of God. I would always be rejected by him. I could never be accepted by him except for Jesus. That's the gospel. Right? And so now... I'm not stuck in this this position of never being accepted by God. I'm accepted and I'm loved by him. And it's supposed to be that patience, that kindness, that love that is the thing that leads me to repentance. And so, husbands, if we're going to point our wives to purity, we're going to have to be committed to doing that, being a spiritual leader in their lives. That may be hard for some of us. We may not know what that looks like or what to do. I would just say the very first thing I would just advise you on a practical note is don't do nothing. Right? It may just mean, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be praying in the morning at this time. If you, if you want to pray with me, I'd love that. You may go, well, I'm not a great prayer. Great. Just pray like you pray. <laughs> Don't try to pray like somebody up here on a stage prays. Don't try to pray like the greatest prayer you've ever read. You just pray your heart to God and invite your wife in. Do something to lead and point to purity. Knowing that you've got to be committed, but you also can't be dictatorial and over the top and incessantly picking Because that's not how Jesus sanctifies. Listen, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have more sinful influence inside of ourselves than we've yet to realize. There's more that God has worked to do in us over than we've ever come to grips with. And yet, God in his high holiness doesn't stand over us and shout and yell, get it all fixed now. Instead, we have a Savior who's tender who's strong in the fact that he's already secured our salvation and acceptance. And so he doesn't have to press the weight down on us and turn the screw dial up on us and tighten it up and say, fix it all today. If that's been your experience or your picture of God, let it be so no longer because Jesus in the gospel should have squashed all of that thought for you. When we were young, married, our first few years of marriage, I didn't get this. I'm just being honest, right? It wasn't pretty thought I was supposed to be helping Jamie grow in the Lord. And so pretty much, I mean, I I wouldn't say every time, but 90% of the time I saw anything that I thought didn't honor the Lord, I'd be like, hey, (laughs) you can only have so many, hey, let's talk about this in one episode of Everybody Loves Raymond before it's like, hey, you're getting to be a bit much, right? Right? If the Lord's not picking at your soul all the time, and some of you need to just hear that today, maybe you're going, I don't know about the husbands and the wives. The Lord is not incessantly picking at your soul to tell you that you stink. That's not Jesus. The Lord lovingly lifts up and points out areas in our lives that are wounding us and dishonoring him so that he can lead us to health and wholeness. And he does it with such precision and patience and kindness. Husbands, be proactively sacrificial for your wife, but not for no reason. Be proactively sacrificial that you might help her see and show Jesus more and more. Now, how far should a husband go in this endeavor? <laughs> goes on to, to say this. Verse 28. It says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as 
their own bodies. How, how much should husbands love their wives? How committed should we be to this proactive, sacrificial nature and, and to this pointing to purity as much as we love our own bodies? He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then in verse 33, he wraps this up with a summation verse and says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, if you want to be a man of God, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, a great place to start is I want to love and lead my wife in the way that Jesus loves and leads the church. How far do I go in that? He says, how committed should you be? How much should you care? You should care about that role and that responsibility that's been given you by God as much as you care about protecting and taking care even of your own flesh. See, here's the thing. You don't have to be trained to take care of you. When a dog jumps and it's nipping and it's about to bite your hand, you instinctively move your hand because you don't like the pain and you know it's coming. You don't have to take a a poll about it. You don't have to work through on a sheet of paper and diagram, should I, should not. It's instinctive to you that you take care of you. Paul says, listen, you are so tied together that this physical Unity is, is a picture of your souls being intermingled. You are physically as close as you can possibly be to be a picture of your souls just being intermingled in Christ with him as the head. And he says, listen, give your best effort to love and give yourself up for your wife. And in so doing, you'll be like Jesus if you do so with the same passion and intensity that you would watch over your own self. That you would care for yourself that way. Can can I just be honest? Young in ministry, I I never would have said this, and I didn't think I thought this, but it was exposed deep in my heart, just me and the Lord. That that there used to be this ugly part in me that used to think as a pastor, well, I have to keep my family led well and in line well because that's one of the qualifications for me to be a good pastor. So I've got to do this so that I can do this as if my family was some kind of less important prerequisite to my ministry as a pastor. Can I just tell you, thank God he ruined that picture in my mind and in my heart. He exposed it. Listen, you don't run a family well so that you can have a high ranking or position or recognition or so that you get an attaboy from God. You love your family well because it's a first primary calling. You love your family well because it's a perfectly poignant way for you to get to see the love of Jesus for his church. You want to know about the sacrifice Jesus has put in for you? Strain yourself to love others more than yourself and go to bed tired at night and you'll go, man, Jesus, if you love me more than that. Love your wife even as if you were one. Because guess what? You are. (laughs) Now, wives, husbands, 
prospective wives, prospective husbands, friends of wives and friends of husbands. Maybe you're not any of those things in your own eyes yet, but you're going, I still don't get the whole Jesus thing. He just said in here, listen, this picture of two people loving each other, mutual submission, the husband by leadership, the wife by seeking and supporting and respecting. He said, this is a picture of how Jesus loves the church, right? This is what it's supposed to look like. You, you think Jesus would never love you? Look at this. Followers of Jesus in the place, our marriages are meant to be signposts that point to the glory of God. What could be bigger? What bigger thing could you do with your life? And yet and still, here's the reality for us. Submitting to that guy, it sounds like a great idea, and in theory, it's wonderful. But man, it gets kind of hard when he does that same thing again. I've asked that man to stop drinking out of the milk carton directly, and he just does it. If, if any of you have any grace for that, if you'll talk to my wife, she's back there and kids, okay? I'm working on it. If you come to my house, you want milk, let me know before you get there. I'll go get another one, okay? Right. You go, hey, I get it, and I want it, and I want to honor Jesus. But in the moments when the rubber meets the road, that dude is difficult to love in that way. Husbands, you go, man, I love her so much. She's so awesome and incredible, and yet I haven't been able to have even a six-inch spot on the bathroom counter since we've been married. I don't know how. It works this way. I don't have any place in the house. That's fine. That's not me talking. I'm just trying to voice for some of my brothers. My wife's great. Okay, I'm good. Before y'all go tell some lies on me, all right? right, You're going, hey, in the moment when she fill in the blank, when she says that thing again, when she does that thing, man, it sounds great that I would be that kind of husband that I would love and honor Jesus in that way, and I would love and honor her in that way. But in the moment when real life hits these real expectations, I don't know how in the world would that ever happen. I want to point us back really quickly to the verse that is the, I believe, a hinge verse that brought us into this whole section on relationships. I believe it's a window into how we can mirror Jesus in all of these different relationships. Paul's going to talk about verse 21. I said last week we'd come back to it. How will you love someone else that way, verse 21, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? It means my reverence, my respectful fear of, my opinion of, my all-filled perspective of Jesus. That I submit to one another, that I submit as a husband in my leadership, that I to the Lord, that I submit as a wife to my husband, his leadership, that we do this thing together, that I do it not based on what their behavior is today and their worthiness is today, but I do it based on what his worthiness is today, Jesus. <laughs> that I treat this person not based on what they've earned from me in this moment, because if I were to do that, I might lose my temper, but instead I'll treat them with love and kindness such as Jesus has proven he's earned for me and is worthy of for me. And you go, well, isn't isn't that a little disingenuous then? Because you're treating this person with love, but you're really saying it's because of Jesus. Can I just say to you that it doesn't truly honor Jesus unless it's really personally applied to that person? (laughs) Jesus is not lover of people and sinners in theory. He specifically loves sinful people. (laughs) Right? So you love them, but you go, God, I'm going to do it out of reverence for you. My sister-in-law used to have this little chihuahua dog. His name was Marley. I know we got a lot of pet lovers in the house. So pray for me. Be gracious. Okay, but I did not love this dog. Okay. He was a rescue. Thank God for rescues. Thank God she was rescuing a dog. All that good stuff. I just wish she could have rescued him far away from me forever. Okay. (laughs) 
she would come visit us and she would want to bring Marley to our house and he would be there. And he, he had been hit by a car and, and or I can't remember. It seems like struck by lightning. I, he might have, I, I don't know what happened. Like maybe he went swimming in a volcano. He was weird, y'all. I, he, he like, his tail was crooked. He limped around. He was always looking at me like, I, I'm, I'm definitely staring at you. You should be scared even though he was like this big. He definitely like treed me up on a chair one time. He just went nuts on me and I jumped on a chair in my own house. A house I owned as a grown man. And I stood in a chair and I looked down at him as he yep, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do now, right? I could not stand this dog named Marley. And I didn't always get it right, but I started learning over the few years of Marley before they had children, and Marley had to leave for some reason, <laughs> right? I started learning, hey, dude, you don't have to love the dog. Hey, dude, he may not be your favorite. But he's got life in his chest. He's a creation of God. And he belongs to somebody that you love and care about a whole, whole lot. Now the illustration breaks down somewhere in there because you better love your spouse a whole, whole lot. I assure you, your spouse is not Marley the Chihuahua. There's no person who's ever been that bad. Okay. But what I'm saying to you is there was a perspective there of I offer love to one who's not deserving of my love because of the love that I have for the one who is his owner. Every day we wake up and we go, God, I'm blessed to have this wonderful person and I live close enough for them to see their brokenness and their humanity. And so God, help me to love them for everything that's awesome about them and in everything that's broken and not yet fully sanctified and brought to maturity. Help me to love them based on the fact that you're their creator. You're their father. Help me to submit to them and love them out of reverence to you, Jesus. And I guarantee you this. You don't hear me use that word often here. I guarantee you this. We commit ourselves to walking with Jesus, not just to a moral effort to be better, but to a fellowship with Jesus, a following of Jesus that says, I want to treat my spouse this way. I want to teach others to treat their spouses this way. I want to be a mirror of this for others, however it may be. I want this to come into my life and my family's life. We walk with Jesus in that direction. It will look different than the world around us, and they will notice with time. <laughs> They'll notice. Nick, Catherine are going to come. We're going to sing a song that we've sung more than a few times around here. It's a song, I think it's a little bit of an anthem for us that we love. It is an active statement, not just of God, you're worthy right here and right now in this moment. It's a statement of, God, I'm leaving here to worship you through my life. Man, maybe today as we respond, maybe you don't need to jump to your feet and sing with a big, loud, full voice. Maybe you need to grab your spouse and go, hey, we need to find somebody to pray with us. We need to not care what anybody might think about what it looks like for us to need to pray with somebody, and we just need to get real with God and know that we're loved in this place no matter what. Maybe some of us need to sit and write down a thought that God has impacted upon our hearts so that we'll actually walk forward in it this week and in the days that follow. How is it that we need to respond as followers of Jesus to a love like this? A love that we could only know and could only make sense and we see his love for us, his church. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, what would hold you back? What would keep you back from a love like that? Let's pray. God, you're bigger than our pride. You're bigger than our faulty understandings.
You're bigger than all that would wrestle in us, God. You're bigger than every circumstance that any marriage in this room faces. There is no problem or hardship that any person or any family in this room is against that you can't squash, that you're not bigger than, God. So, God, I pray that you would help us to see rightly your grandeur. Help us to see rightly your personal love and care and grace. And let that lead us to love each other in the way that you've loved us. Jesus, we ask this for the glory of your name and our joy therein. Amen.